Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Okay, I make it one o'clock on my uh, clock, so I think I'll make a start. I'd say welcome everybody and thank you for joining us for this Institute for Policy Research roundtable discussion on the topic, what will COVID-19 mean for widening participation in higher education? My name is Matt Dixon. I'm a reader in public policy at the IPR, where I lead our programme of work on widening participation. And I'm going to be chairing uh, the discussion this afternoon. It's fair to say uh, that we've had a few technical issues over the past 24 hours, uh, which means that apologies, we are having to run uh, this event as a Zoom uh, meeting rather than a Zoom webinar, uh, but it shouldn't disrupt uh, the viewing experience uh, in any way. Uh, if you're on speaker view, you'll be able to see myself or whichever member of the panel is speaking and everybody else's uh, mics and video uh, is going to be sw is switched off and will remain so throughout. So that shouldn't cause uh, any problem. And in theory, everything should work uh, absolutely fine. Before we um, uh, yeah, get started, I'll just give you a couple more um, housekeeping notices. Uh, just say this is uh, being recorded uh, and subject to no further technical problems, then we will be making this available as a uh, podcast and as a video on our website and uh, via our social media channels uh, shortly after the event. Okay, so um, back to the reason why we're here uh, this afternoon. The COVID-19 pandemic has obviously delivered a seismic shock uh, to the UK higher education sector as it has to every other part of life uh, in the UK. Um, and institutions have had to rapidly um, respond and um, reshape their operations, uh, pretty much uh, all to be online in light of the social distancing uh, that's gonna be with us for a while and obviously the lockdown initially. And similarly, schools and colleges have had to um, change their teaching approach and their assessment for this year, particularly for those students who are doing high stakes exams and looking to uh, start higher education in this coming academic year. Of course, plans for 2021 are still developing and evolving every day, but in this discussion, we're going to be thinking about the implications in light of the landscape as it's looking like it's going to be at the moment. I'm delighted to be joined by a panel of four expert speakers who have um, expertise in knowledge in um, wine and participation in higher education. Uh, let me introduce them to you now. Uh, first of all, we have Becky Montacute, who is a research and policy manager at the Sutton Trust, uh, where she specializes in topics including access to higher education and access on into the professions. And Becky recently co-authored the Sutton Trust report on COVID-19 impacts on university access. We're also joined by Charlotte Chatterton, who is a professor of education at Bath Spa University, where her research focuses on social justice and education with a particular concern for how race and other inequalities are produced and reproduced in education spaces, including higher education. Um, Charlotte also researches the policies and practice impacts uh, on uh, students' transition into higher education and from higher education on into the labour market. And Charlotte also um, researches in the field of disaster education, which is something I didn't even know uh, was a thing until recently. Um, so she's examining the social justice implications of disaster preparedness and response. Um, so we'd love to get a chance to talk to you about that later, Charlotte, so hopefully we'll get on to that. Um, we're also joined by Sam Friedman, who's Associate Professor of Sociology at the LSE, where his research on the sociology of class and inequality focuses in particular on the cultural dimensions of the contemporary class division. Uh, Sam's recently published book, uh, co-authored book, The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged, examines the hidden barriers that hinder social mobility into, higher, into the higher professional and managerial occupations in this country. And our final panel member is Martha Longden. Martha was recently awarded her MSc in Neuropharmacology at Nottingham Trent University, where she was also the Student Union President in 2018-19. Um, Martha joined the Board of the Office for Students in 2018 and is the Chair of the Student Panel, which aims to challenge and improve the Office for Students by ensuring that student views uh, inform OFS decision-making processes. 
we're very keen to hear the student voice in all of our uh, deliberations and discussions today. So it's great to have Martha with us. Um, I would just point out that Martha is talking in a, a personal capacity though as someone who has a lot of contact with the student body uh, rather than speaking officially on behalf of the RFS. Okay, so there are three broad areas we're going to address today. Firstly, the impact of COVID-19 on fair access to higher education for students from disadvantaged or non-traditional uh, HE backgrounds. Secondly, the impact of COVID-19 on the HE experience of students and how certain groups may be disproportionately affected. And finally, the impact of COVID-19 on inequalities in student attainment and post higher education destination. I'm also going to be thinking about the policy steps that HEIs can be making and, and government and the Office of Students to address some of these challenges and also think about potential opportunities for um, useful reform uh, that could come out of this uh, process. I'll just say the chat function uh, is enabled and it's set up in such a way that you will just be able to send questions to the host, it'll just be visible uh, to the host and then uh, later on our, our admin host is going to send me those questions, so we'll have a chance to put those uh, to the panel, uh, some of those questions later on uh, towards the end of the hour. If you get any questions around in a, by around about 1.40, 1.45, that would be um, really good. Okay, so without further ado, um, I'd like to kick things off by asking uh, Becky to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on fair access to higher education. Uh, Becky, in your view, what impact could this year's non-exam assessment methods for A-levels and other uh, qualifications have on fair access for students uh, from, from different backgrounds? Yeah, so I think we're quite concerned at the moment that the actual impact of this could be quite substantial. So for anyone who's not familiar with what they're doing for A-levels uh, in lieu of exams this year, essentially what will happen is that teachers will give what they think the grade should be for their students and they will rank them in order within the school. Ofqual, the exam regulator, will then do some statistical checks looking at how that school's done historically, how those students, what their prior attainment was like over time, and then control for that to give what the student's final grade will be. What we're concerned about, though, is that the underlying mechanism for this relies on teacher assessments of students' ability. And we know research previously has shown that even if they are high attaining, students are high attaining in exam results, their teachers tend to underestimate, if they're from a low-income background, how well they will actually do in those exams. And the same is also true, although I don't personally work on this, for people from different ethnic minority backgrounds as well. So there are lots and lots of concerns around how fair those assessments will be. At the moment, Ofqual don't have anything in place to correct for that. So they're not currently planning to do any kind of assessment as to whether or not the attainment gap widens this year with this method, no kind of statistical check on kind of what the impact of that will be. Um, we have written to them and encouraged them to do that. And we think that that could be a way to try to help with this. Um, but that, that is a concern, I think. And I think it's something that universities should be keeping in mind when they're going through this year's cohort, that the same kind of principles we'd normally ask them to put in place to think about the kind of context of students' achievement um, when deciding on offers, they should also do that in making final decisions about who gets places. So given we know the system is likely to systemically disadvantage certain groups of students, including those on low incomes, they should bear that in mind if those groups of students just miss out on their offer grade. Um, so that, that is kind of our, our major concern at the moment. So there's things that the um, Office of Students could be perhaps pushing uh, in terms of thinking about this contextualization and particularly so uh, I suppose some of quite a lot of responsibility then is on higher education institutions themselves to um, look at the grades and contextualize in, uh, as you say in the kind of who, offering who gets the uh, actual places. I'm thinking also about what um, higher education institutions can do um, the support in navigating the new, this kind of new system that's new for everybody. Um, often there'll be um, uh, schools would help, you know, careers guidance and stuff like that, and, and people would be helping. Uh, but obviously schools, you know, not being open and not having the same sort of access. Is there, do you think there's things that higher education institutions should be doing uh, to kind of smooth that transition to help uh, particular groups of students to navigate their way? Yeah, absolutely. So. 
At the start of April, we did some polling of applicants who have applied to university this year and asked them how happy they are with the provision from their school, both for schoolwork in general and also for kind of help and support around the HE application process. And whilst about 68% of them were happy with the help they were getting with schoolwork, only 57% were with the help they were getting with the HE application process. So there's clearly a gap there. Now, I no means mean to say this is any kind of criticism of teachers, because I think teachers have been going absolutely above and beyond at the moment in extremely difficult circumstances. I also think in terms of the issues of teacher bias, that's not a criticism of teachers either, because all of us have those kind of underlying biases and it, it's not their fault. But given all the challenges that schools are currently facing, it's really unlikely they're going to be able to have the kind of capacity. I think the thing that I'm slightly worried about at the moment is that there have been reports of WP teams having some of their staff furloughed during this time, that the OFS have said that money that universities would have spent on in real life WP, they can maybe put into other areas at the moment. Um, and I think that's quite concerning because I think there's going to be a bigger need for a lot of that support from universities at the moment, especially for groups of young people who their, op their options at the moment are going to be very difficult. So they might not be able to afford to take the year out and stay at home living with their parents. Their parents might not be able to afford that. But equally, they might not be able to afford to go to university without a part time job. And obviously, a lot of the kind of jobs they normally do aren't really available. So there's definitely there's going to be very difficult decisions facing those students. And the fact that not all of them at the moment seem to be having adequate support is definitely really concerning. Yeah, I think that is a, it's a big question, isn't it? And thinking about um, if people defer and, you know, what are people going to do for this year and, and all those kind of considerations. Um, I'm just going to come to Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Chatterton now, if I can, and just ask you, Charlotte, you, you've worked on the way in which policies and practices impact on young people's transitions into higher education. Um, do you share these sorts of concerns that Becky's outlining? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree with Becky. Um, we know that the pandemic is already amplifying existing inequalities and we know that that's the same as it is always with disasters and crises. Um, and I would want to emphasize the intersectional nature of this process. Uh, it's a class, race and gendered process. And so for example, as Becky's already flagged, the issue around teacher assessment, um, if we are depending on teacher assessment of students in order for them to access HE, then we know already there's a wealth of research which suggests that uh, BAME students, for example, are disadvantaged through that process. The expectations of certain groups are lower. My own previous research um, has shown that gatekeepers play a big role in terms of uh, admissions tutors who, um, again, maintain class privilege and, and, and white privilege. Um, around these ideas of who is an, an ideal student and what kind of student that they, they, they want for, for the institution. Um, I would also flag that I think gender is going to come back as a really big issue here because obviously we know that women now attend university in greater numbers than, than men and we might assume that, that gender is kind of off the table for now. Um, but in fact, we're already seeing that uh, women are being disadvantaged through the pandemic childcare issues, they're more likely to work in sectors which are uh, where they've been furloughed or where they've lost their jobs, for example. And I think that's going to become a bigger issue now in terms of HE access. I think, it, thanks Charlotte. Um, <clears throat> it'd be good to bring uh, Martha in at this point if I can and just um, see Martha, are you, when, when you're talking to students and your involvement, are you hearing these sorts of concerns coming from students who are already at university and potential entrants for the next academic year? I am hearing some of the concerns, particularly around um, how their grade will be defined over the summer and what if they don't agree with them, what they can do about that um, in terms of maybe looking elsewhere for next year. Um, I think there's a real need to emphasise that students shouldn't be reducing their ambitions in terms of where they're applying to this year. Um, there are lots of places, there are probably potentially more places this year than there might have been uh, in previous years. So there are lots of opportunities to get involved in higher education this year. Um, 
we need to be really careful about the uh, information available to those students, making sure that it's accessible for those who uh, perhaps at the moment are experiencing digital poverty. Uh, a lot of universities are moving online with their uh, you know, virtual campus tours and with their support, we need to make sure that it's accessible for those who can't access that. Um, and we also need to make sure that wherever we can do, we're being really honest about what to expect. We all appreciate, applicants uh, as well, appreciate that next year will look very different to how you would normally expect to CHD. Uh, there will be some concessions that have to be made in terms of how it's delivered, but there shouldn't be any concessions around the quality. Um, and what we need is for clarity, I think, from providers um, fairly soon about how that will look so that students can make really informed decisions and make the right choice for them. It's a really difficult choice anyway about where to study and what to study. Um, and this is kind of exacerbating that. So I think one thing we might see that we haven't already touched on so much is a, a reduction in mobility to higher education. So students wishing to stay closer to home um, because of the uncertainty of what might happen in the coming months. I think that's really key point, Martha, you raised about information and just clarity about how things, how things are going to be, how things are going to operate. Um, and the point you made at the beginning as well about okay, this new assessment methods and what to do with your grades if you're not happy with them. I wonder if, um, if I can bring in Sam uh, Friedman there at that point, because this is one of the areas where you think already we know that people asking for marks, uh, you know, exams to be regraded, uh, this is something that is definitely kind of socially graded and a way in which people with more um, education capital or cultural capital uh, use that as a, as a lever to try and position their children and you know just more likely to be the pushy parents asking for remarks etc etc so to see um, that as a, a likely to be an increasing problem uh, this year in particular absolutely Matt I think um, you know it's this it's this sort of interesting <clears throat> element of, uh, of of the ways in which people um, react to, to, to uncertainty um, and it sort of brings in I think these um sort of classed aspects of, of of what you might call entitlement um uh or this uh, this sense of your 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 right to um to negotiate opportunities particularly with uh institutions whether that's schools or universities and and obviously that's when i think you know the the some sort of sense of a, a cultural matching um in terms of cultural capital between yourself and the gatekeepers in that institution comes into play um, really strongly. I mean, just to say, I think on the admissions point, I think we're possibly going to see this coming quite strongly in relation to admissions in terms of, um, you know, I was just talking to uh, someone I know who works at an elite university, I won't name it, who's saying that, you know, they have been receiving uh, some emails from, from people involved in the university kind of putting pressure on them to um, think about applications from uh, alumni or, ch or children of alumni and I think what you're seeing is this kind of sense in which where there's uncertainty some more informal mechanisms for things like admissions um, that normally would be um, would be uh, harder to kind of gamify um, come into play um, and those you know amplify those those inequalities and I, I think that's a kind of worrying um, dimension to this but that's really important in terms of thinking about widening participation, not just in terms of the students from disadvantaged backgrounds, but from the point of view of, of those from privileged backgrounds, kind of seeing this as a, an opportunity, not in a kind of cynical way, but uh, in a way that is um, instinctive, I think. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, so we're, we're going to return to this um, later on, but already we can see uh, ideas coming up as to you know the policy responses and how important it's going to be to uh, put measures in place to try and counteract some of these uh, some of these issues but um, what I'd like to do now having thought a little bit about some of the emergent issues in terms of access to higher education um, as, as Martha brought up it's going to be a very different uh, experience of higher education for students who are particularly students who are starting higher education um, in this uh, September, October. Um, so if you move on to thinking about, you know, how the pandemic may differentially affect uh, students' experience. Charlotte, if I can come to you first on this, um, we're going to have a lot of uh, online teaching, it seems, uh, particularly for lectures um, and restricted access to university sites. Um, 
how do you see this impacting? I mean, we hear about no detriment policies that uh, universities want to ensure that students don't suffer, but how, how do you uh, see this differentially affecting uh, certain types of, of, of students? Yeah, this will, I expect, potentially exacerbate the existing inequalities as well. And we know there are deeply ingrained institutional inequalities, right, race, class, gendered. Uh, um, so, for example, access to reliable technology, access to a reliable internet connection, access to a spare room, quiet study is going to be completely differential. Um, we, there's already been reports of disabled students having to apply for extensions or apply for extra assistive technology themselves, um, rather than the universities providing that, uh, and that having taken up extra time, it's time consuming, it's stressful, so, and, and, and the responsibility is it's been left to them. Um, then gender issues, of course, as we mentioned, so childcare and housework, for example, falling more to females in the household, and obviously then that, that will privilege uh, men. Um, financial situations, also already mentioned, those who would rely on a part-time job may not be able to. Um, businesses um, or those people who might come from a household where again there's been a reduction in income because loss of job um, and again the recent IFS report has shown that this is impacting more on women than men. Uh, issues such as mental health support so we also know from previous research that uh, mental health and well-being support at universities doesn't always take an, an intersectional approach. Um, and there's evidence to suggest that when, when women or BAME students ask for help, they are taken less seriously. So again, it's likely to exacerbate the, this situation. Uh, feelings of belonging. Um, non-traditional students, as we know, uh, tend to find it more difficult to feel like they belong to, to an institution and that could well be exacerbated uh, by not being on campus or by being on campus more rarely. Um, and another one I was thinking of that perhaps hasn't had much, much attention yet is this idea of uh, creating safe spaces on campus. So people, often students will find like-minded people um, and that's particularly important for those who belong to minority groups or marginalised groups. Again, there may be less opportunity to do that. Of course, uh, there will still be the online spaces um, and, and in fact, you know, it could be, there could be advantages there in terms of it might be easier to find these safe spaces, but at the moment, potentially, you know, we, we, we could uh, surmise that there could be difficulties there as well. Yeah, I think that that thought about, you know, the induction of uh, students who are perhaps first in family or from um, a background where they don't have much experience of higher education, those clubs, societies, sports, all those sorts of things that are really integral um, to people, yeah, generating that sense of belonging and, and being in the, you know, feeling this is a place for them. Um, if they're not going to be able to run, uh, that could really... Um, have a negative impact and I think um, I'll, I'll just if I can bring in Martha at this point just to um, put that point to you Martha this is as you mentioned before it's going to be a very different experience on on campus um, and are you similarly sharing this worry that this is going to have a real negative effect on on BME students and, and perhaps yeah other students who uh, students who've come from backgrounds with not much higher education experience Absolutely. I mean, we see this ordinarily in a normal year um, and with all the other things that are coming out of this uh, pandemic, I think Charlotte's covered this uh, really well, so I won't try to add too much to that. Um, I think what I would say is that I, I, I really do feel, having been first in family, I was, I, I was a commuter student for um, much of my undergraduate. And the things that really made a difference to me, um, you know, having lower levels and having not a lot of confidence in myself, were the holistic things, the volunteering, the meeting of the students and, and that kind of side of it. And I think um 
as much as there should be a real emphasis on quality, there's also needs to be an emphasis on employability and building up personal development as well. Uh, and one area that do that exceptionally well, uh, I, I feel, are student unions. And I think there's a real concern amongst students and amongst uh, student officers as well that um, those sorts of student representative groups are no longer getting the same kind of commercial income next year uh, and potentially receiving lower block grants. Um, they are vital in terms of uh, their representative, representative function. Um, students need them to know where to go for advice. Uh, universities and providers need them to know what students are saying and what things are going potentially wrong for them. Um, and I think particularly in my experience, a lot of feedback from students tends to come from that informal conversation in, in the margins of lectures and uh, you know, a football practice. And I think without that, there's a real risk that students don't really know um, whether what they're experiencing is, is right or, or normal or what they should be expecting from their provider. And so we need to make sure we are not just for disadvantage, but also for maintaining quality as well, making sure that students have access to other students and are able to build those communities and that peer support network. That's really, really important. Yeah, I guess it's, it's uh, uh, thinking again about Sam, about your work on, on building that kind of different types of cultural capital and, and the difference that different students bring with them uh, and then build whilst they're in um, higher education. I mean, it's going to be very different, right, to be on campus this year. Um, as Martha mentioned, those kind of informal connections, those um, clubs and, and, and then discussions that happen there that aren't um, in a formal teaching space or, or uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be quite different for students to build those networks, build those relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the interesting point there, though, um, you know, is, 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 is there's a bit of a question mark there. And um, I suppose a little bit in the same way as, as Charlotte mentioned, you know, it could, it could be that this acts in some way as a, a partial equaliser of the ways in which at the moment, um, you know, I think particularly in my experience of kind of settings like the LSE, where we consistently hear that students um, you know, from, from all sorts of disadvantaged backgrounds, feel that they uh, find it very hard to, 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 to sort of um, um, build up a sense of belonging um, and in this very elite environment. And that the whole infrastructure of, of the university, including the extracurricular stuff, um, works actually as a mechanism, even when, you know, in, in lots of individual instances and lots of good initiatives to, to counteract this, the overarching sense is that the institution um, isn't one for them and that possibly and 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 you know even things like living at home and not being able to um, perhaps take advantage of the social elements of university in the ways that students from more privileged backgrounds and live in more low well located housing it may be that that, that this actually can um, to some extent that um, might might bring some some interesting sort of um, I think as people have already mentioned, there are all sorts of other ways in which these uh, more cultural elements play in. I mean, just even just this the classic sort of commentary on, on Zoom backgrounds, right? I mean, yeah. the, all the sort of information that people are, are gleaning about one another and, you know, the sense in which you're, uh, even in this kind of setting, you are, you're performing in a kind of embodied cultural capital way, but then you have this extra dimension of people reading in to your your life behind you uh, in all of its dimensions and the ways in which I think that possibly can um, can accentuate these inequalities so I think it's you know there's lots of aspects here um, and and there's lots we don't necessarily know how they're going to play out although we have you know lots of previous research that points in certain directions yeah, Becky, I don't know if your work that previously you mentioned, like the polling of talking to students, were there these kind of um, concerns coming coming out of that work? So we haven't really asked them about, I guess, what their experiences of wider um, kind of clubs and societies are and will be under lockdown. But I think I would echo a lot of what's been said here. I think it's hard to know exactly which way it will fall because there's a lot of young people who from working class backgrounds more likely to live at home with their parents can't access this kind of clubs and societies I think there's really an opportunity that if universities and student unions are able to have the resources to do this very well that they actually could open up access to a lot of young people who normally can't access any of these clubs and activities because they can't stay late maybe they have caring responsibilities at home 
it could open up actually quite a lot of opportunities. I think what we have found from the polling of current students we did is that their ability to interact with that is very different depending on their background. So actually we found the biggest issue for them was access to available working space. So about a quarter of all students said they didn't have suitable access to a working space wherever they were currently living. So obviously that would have been a mix of people who were able to go back home and live with their parents again. Some people may have not been able to do that at all, but if they couldn't go out and be able to go to campus libraries or other workspaces, there's a big lot of students that actually don't have access to that. And working class students were more likely to say that they didn't have access. One thing we're finding it quite difficult to get at is exactly what their internet access is, wherever it is that they are at the moment because a lot of the methods used to do this are polling over the internet, which obviously has a limitation as to who has the internet. So we've found from that only about five to 6% of students don't have kind of laptops, devices, the internet, but obviously that's probably a, an underestimate of that need. So I think what would be really important for universities to be doing at this point in government to enable, because obviously they're in quite difficult financial situations at the moment, is to make sure all of those students have access to at least laptops and the internet. I think workspaces are a much more challenging one to get at um, because obviously where you live is a much more kind of, there's no quick fix. The government can't just immediately buy you a new house. Um, but I think really thinking about from the part of the universities that these kids are going to be in very different kind of living situations. So some of them might be going back to a kind of gigantic country mansion and then on the other end, you're going to have students who maybe don't have their own bedroom when they're at home, where they might have younger siblings, where they all need to do their schoolwork and there's one device that they're all trying to use between them. Their internet might be extremely poor. Their family might have really bad kind of financial situations at the moment, making everything at home extremely stressful. And I think universities having that at the front of their mind whenever they're deliver, kind of devising any policies at the moment is really, really vital. Yeah, I think that's a, a key message that's kind of al already coming out and, and um, people have been talking about is the kind of inequality or equality impact assessment of any of the measures that universities are taking to kind of mitigate the circumstances as we go into the, well, not even just as we go into the new year, thinking about over this current uh, period of assessments and then over the summer and keeping in touch uh, with students. Um, because any any move that universities make, I suppose, has the potential on the one hand to improve situations and improve kind of existing inequalities, but also if it's not thought out uh, with, you know, in mind thinking about the inequality uh, that could be exacerbated, then it could be, yeah, it could be quite a negative. Um, thanks uh, for that, Becky. I'm going to move on now um, to thinking about, we've, we've thought about kind of students coming into higher education and then the experience of what it's going to be like for students uh, on campus and their HE experience. Um, but if we want to think about what's the impact of COVID-19 on student attainment and kind of inequalities in attainment and then their kind of postgraduate destination. Um, I wonder if I can come to you, Sam, and just ask you about um, new arrangements for, you know, universities are, are changing their final exam uh, arrangements, uh, and then we've got the kind of transition into uh, graduate jobs and graduate employment and how that's managed and how firms are going to manage their recruitment without being able to do, um, I guess, those kind of milk ground type things that normally go uh, to universities. How these changes in the way things are done um, could potentially impact on what we know are already these kind of socioeconomic gradients uh, in, in who gets into what job and who gets into the top uh, places within different professions. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, a couple of points here, I think, in terms of this element of sort of graduate destinations recruitment. Um, I think the, the key one, in a way, um, is is this idea of the kind of hidden power of the bank of mum and dad um and really the kind of power that parental wealth um is going to exert and come to the fore uh, even more so than than i think it does in existing ways and i suppose kind of influence people's calculus of of risk around what they do uh, and what options are available to them i mean what we found in our book 
you know, before the crisis is that this bank of mum and dad acts as this really important form of insulation um, from a lot of the uncertainty associated with forging a career. Um, and particularly in um, certain industries, places like the culture and creative industries, uh, which are very precarious labour markets, but also in particular places like London, where most of the best opportunities are clustered. And I think, you know, that's going to come out here really strongly. Some work we did with Becky was showing, uh, the Sutton Trust was showing that um, of people who move to take up, you know, what are realistically the best labour market opportunities in the country, higher professional managerial occupations in London, 75% of those people making that geographical move to London to take up these opportunities are from privileged uh, professional managerial backgrounds. Uh, and I think that sort of figure is going to be even further accentuated as, as people uh, think about, well, what, um, what, what can I do in this sort of environment, um, considering the uh, resources I have behind me um, in terms of, 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 of my parents and all sorts of other types of elements in terms of who can negotiate um, unpaid or poorly paid internships, um, who can take more risky opportunities, who's able to um, manoeuvre onto more promising but more uncertain uh, career tracks. Um, so I think those are those, that kind of element, and, and, and obviously always the interesting sociological um, part of that is that, you know, this is a sort of fairly unspoken topic. Um, it's very hard to measure the, um, unless you do the kind of detailed qualitative work um, about how how that um, form of insulation is affecting people's um, decision making and then I think just um, in terms of the firms themselves in these kinds of professions again I, I would emphasize you know this sense of, of, of heightened uncertainty and uh, and also perhaps time pressure um, and what that will mean in terms of the uh, mechanisms that are normally used uh, around recruitment uh, and how some of the formality there that's actually often really crucial in terms of um, ensuring you know equity in the way that um, these processes are done um, may well be circumvented you know in in ways where people fall back on informal networks that advantage the privileged uh, and what we call this kind of cultural matching very similar to what uh, I think is really the dynamic in relation to teachers assessments of, of students, but uh, you know, in, in a position where you have to make a decision under a particular time pressure and you feel that there is an extra dimension of uncertainty, are recruiters, gatekeepers, um, kind of making decisions on who feels familiar, um, who feels like um, um, somebody that they recognize, um, and to what degree is that a reflection of a kind of match uh, in their kind of class cultural coordinates? That's really interesting that you, you kind of picked up on that, that idea of the match and the kind of unconscious bias that Becky was talking about. We need to be just really, HRs need to be super aware of in making their kind of offers and, and really, yeah, not falling into those um, uh, kind of heuristics of thinking you know, that, that perpetuate these inequalities. And then the same sorts of things that are potentially being sharpened at the other end, right? When people are coming out, and that already exist and potentially now with these different methods of, of um, having to interview people. And, and again, I suppose it comes into that technology as well. If people are having to be interviewed and relying on having uh, the, uh, the hardware, but also the good internet connection and all those, all those sorts of things. Um, I know if I come to Martha and just, is this something that um, you're hearing from students, this kind of different levels of anxiety about how, people are going on into the labour market and um, the labour market that they're facing at the moment? Um, so in a recent survey, 81% of around 10,000 student respondents uh, said they were concerned about their own job prospects going into um, employment after the pandemic. Um, it is a very difficult labour market. Um, we're seeing real economic hardship, predicted about a 14% uh, decrease in GDP. It's, it's really difficult times for everybody. Um, but particularly for students who don't necessarily have those other transferable skills just yet that they would have gained in their first years of employment. Um, and particularly also where they struggled with things like online assessments, 
um, to get the grades that they really deserve at the end of their study. So there are a number of things that are kind of really pressing on that, that fear at the moment. Um, I know that a lot of career services are moving online, uh, they're moving their provision um, digitally. We've already talked about um, issues with online access, but we also need to think about the changing nature of recruitment processes. So um, most employers now are moving their assessment centres online, they're moving their interviews online, and they're looking for a different kind of skill set to work in this kind of environment. Um, and I'm not sure that necessarily all of our graduates are currently prepared for that, so that needs to kind of be considered going forward. Um, I think also we need to really stress that there are going to be challenges in terms of um, outcomes and, and moving into jobs. And I think what we need to really recognise is that those students who are most disadvantaged and who are still going on to get those really good degrees at the end of it and that excellent subject knowledge against really difficult circumstances really need to be recognised for that and we need to be preparing those students particularly um, to articulate that experience and their adaptability, their flexibility and their dedication to get through such a difficult situation and still be these really employable graduates at the end of it. So I suppose it's on the one hand that's a message for our HEIs, our careers, um, advisors and the people working in student services to equip students really to narrate that journey uh, as, as part of their um, talk when you know when they talk about uh, job interviews and go to job interviews but also from the employer point of view just to be able to um, again just be aware of the way in which this is a, having a differential impact on on different um, different types of students. Um, uh, Charlotte I don't know if you have um, I know you've worked on looking at how students transition into um, from higher education into the labour market. Um, uh, do you have any particular um, research that's that's can speak to this about uh, potential for even greater inequalities as we go into this kind of pandemic labour market? I think the point that I would make here because I the points by that Martha and Sam have, have already made have been well made already the point that I would make is that uh, universities themselves are employers and they could lead by example but they don't tend to I mean, we know that leadership roles in universities in general tend to be taken by white middle class men. men. Uh, we know that there are, for example, very few black female professors in this country, I think 25 at last count. We know that um, there's a lack of flexibility around staff with disabilities. Um, it's mostly women and BAME staff on the insecure contact, contracts. So I think my point here would be that universities should lead by example as an employer. That's, um, that's really interesting. Thank you, Shah. And actually that provides a nice um, segue into thinking about um, policies, because I don't know if you saw yesterday, there was a really powerful um, article on the wonky uh, website. Um, where are we? Here we go. Yeah, by um, Tamina Chowdhury from Middlesex University Students Union, thinking about racial inequalities in higher education and exactly um, the sort of point you're making about leadership and um, the way in which actually there is an opportunity here for real uh, positive reform being driven by higher education institutions and that actually the responses that are made and the preparations that are made and the policies that are put in place can either exacerbate existing racial and other inequalities or they can try and do something about it and so um, that leads us nicely on to thinking about the policy responses uh, that we'd like to see from higher education institutes um, and from you know department for education and potentially um, the office uh, for students um, because none of these policies are going to be kind of inequality neutral, right? They're going to push things one way uh, or another. And so there is potentially um, some opportunity for some really positive reform. Um, so if I'll, I'll come to each of you and, and thank you, Charlotte, kind of kicked us off on that. Uh, if I come to you, Becky, um, just to think about, yeah, what do you see as the opportunities for um, institutions to make positive uh, responses that are going to help inequalities and help uh, WP. Yeah, so I think um, some of the stuff I've kind of mentioned in bits before, but thinking about issues like making sure everybody has access to that kind of tech and internet needs, making sure that you're really thinking about the issues around grades, 
And the really important thing I think to stress is that this isn't only going to be a problem for this year. So there are going to be kids going through school at the moment who will have missed out on a really big chunk of time. Um, some analysis that just came out yesterday from the Education Endowment Foundation, they've estimated that that gap is actually going to widen back to where it was about 10 years ago. And those students are, you know, probably not going to very quickly catch up when they get back. We think that the DV should be putting in place measures to try to help with that. But these students are going to be going through the higher education system over the next few years, and they will already be at that point behind. And I think that H um, higher education providers and the EARTHS really need to be thinking about what their response to that will be over the coming years and how they can make sure that kind of access and participation targets are still met in that time. Um, I think it's really encouraging that the OFS have thus far said that they essentially are still expecting that. But I think making sure that, because they do tend to keep it quite vague in terms of if you have a good reason you can't meet these targets, then we will, you know, discuss that with you. I think that they should be holding quite firm during this time, that they should still be doing everything absolutely possible to meet those targets. And then just in terms of one kind of bigger picture thing, I think one of the things that's really been brought out during this year's university application round is the real kind of um, limitations to teachers predicting grades. But at the moment, where students apply and who actually gives them an offer is entirely based on that system, which does disadvantage certain groups of students. So really looking at changing that entire application system in future so that it's based on actual grades achieved I think would be a really good thing for universities to take out of this in the future. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. It's really shone a light on the problems with predicted grades, right? And, and really uh, given a new um, momentum to the idea that we have a kind of post-qualification uh, offer system or even a post-qualification application system. That's certainly something that because of all these, uh, as you pointed out, all of these inequalities in uh, teacher grading and, and assessments and, and the kind of, yeah, the problems that leads to with undermatch. We know the research on that um, from, from CPO at UCL. Um, so that's a, that's a positive that we could be taking forward um, that the whole system uh, could potentially be reformed in that way. Um, uh, if I come to you, um, Martha, to think about policy response, um, what, what's on your kind of um, hit list of this is what we really should be doing as, as higher education institutes, but also, you know, perhaps government, perhaps OFS? Oh, I think, I think you're just still on mute for a second there, Martha, if we can get that. There we go, brilliant. Okay. Um, I think what I would say is that very few of the issues that we're seeing from students at the moment are new issues. They're probably very hidden issues previously and now they're being exacerbated and really brought to the fore. Um, and the absolute best thing that we can be doing across the sector is to really listen to those students uh, when they're trying to talk about their experience. I know it's so difficult at the moment moving at such a pace to consult in the same way that we normally would do with students on various issues, uh, both kind of sector-wide but also within individual providers. Um, but it really does pay to listen to that feedback and I've seen uh, a number of examples where um, providers have gone forward with the policy um, then had a student response to that which was not particularly um, it was quite uh, critical, uh, quite challenging in, in a lot of cases um, and they've changed their policy on, as a result of that and that's helped a lot of students out so I think the first thing would be to be really honest about what you can and can't do but also to really listen to students and to really understand their experience but I think also whilst I appreciate that you know every provider is different every kind of student cohort is different there are some really cross-cutting issues at the moment across most providers and rather than trying to put your resource individually into reinventing the wheel and looking really directly at your own try and work with those um, really expert organizations within the sector who have that expertise on um, you know WP in schools and um, employment issues and on all, all aspects of the student journey I don't think um, anyone needs to be really doing too much of their own individual research on that I think there's already a lot of information there there's a lot of um, highlighting what the issues are and now it's time for us to try and put solutions in place for our students. That's great thank you Martha thank you for those thoughts I'm going to quickly just move on to um, Sam um, in terms of policy responses uh, you mentioned 
potentially things that HDIs could be doing, but also employers. Is there a piece on the employer side uh, that needs to be, I don't quite know how you mandate it, but um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I was thinking more in terms of um, widening participation practitioners. I feel like, the, I mean, and I think this, this, this was, would have been important before the crisis, but I think even more so just making sure that the provision within universities more adequately addresses the transition into the labour market um, and and supports students and listens to them in the way that Martha's been talking about um, beyond the direct student experience. And I think that's perhaps where WP is going, but perhaps needs to go a little bit further and needs to be particularly sensitive to how difficult those transitions are going to be in the, in the next few years. Yeah, I think that idea of listening is something that's certainly come through um very clearly um that this is what yeah this is what whether it's universities um or office students or government departments need to be actually listening to the students listening to the concerns um and taking into account just the additional pressures that there are on students who are from wp backgrounds um charlotte you gave us kicked us off with talking about um how HEIs can be leading as employers. Um, I'm aware of the time, we're into the kind of last 10 minutes. So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna come to you first on the questions. Um, so we've had quite a few questions sent in and one of them I just want to um, put to you. I think this is a space where research, uh, researchers and practitioners could certainly um, really be helping each other out here. Um, so I have a question uh from practitioner side saying you know what do we already know from uh research are the needs of and the barriers for particular uh like wp students with regards to accessing and engaging with online and blended learning um do we know already about these kind of challenges we've heard a little bit about the technology but um is there yeah is there more research behind that as to um how these new things going forward are going to really impact on on uh, WP students? I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that really. Um, because I'm, I'm not sure what's, what's out there in terms of actually like research on technology. I think what we know is that technology often is supposed to improve lives. And in fact, what ends up happening is exacerbates inequalities because of access and flexibility. And so practitioners and, and universities need to always have that in mind in terms of ensuring that uh, to the best of the, their ability that the access to technology is as equal as possible. Okay, thank you. Um, I guess that's also a question that um, Becky, perhaps you would have um, some thoughts on about the existing kind of knowledge we have about how to tackle uh, these inequalities that already, already exist in, in um, access to technology. You've touched on this before. Yeah, so it, I think the biggest thing we know is that there is going to be a big gap and universities are going to have to do something to put that tech in place. I think the thing that researchers can really do alongside practitioners is you know we've never had to all be inside because of a global pandemic before the actual situation is very very new and being able to highlight where universities have been successful and have put in place good practice so that other universities can kind of take that on and learn from each other as quickly as possible in this time i think that's the kind of thing that would be really useful yeah i think that's as, as, as martha kind of touched upon as well that idea of we don't need to reinvent the wheel and there's a lot of good um, knowledge out there already and from practitioners and from researchers and if there's uh, we, some way in which we can better communicate that and, and link those things uh, together. Okay I've got quite a few questions here uh, so let me just pick one here um, that um, touches on some of the things we've talk, talked about. Um, so what what messages should we be using with students as to why they should stick to their studies as planned? This is something that's kind of come up uh, in the discussion. Um, how can we be explaining the, the kind of the pitfalls of, of deferring, given that we know that it's likely that deferring can have a different impact, as, as Sam was mentioning, on students from different backgrounds, what they do 
in a, in a year whether people are able to take up uh, unpaid internships and where people are going to live. So um, how can we, um, I suppose, communicate with students the importance of, of, as someone mentioned earlier, not lowering expectations, not kind of lowering their sights um, and not thinking perhaps that, oh, maybe I'll just defer um, for this year. Maybe if I, if I come to you, Martha, on that, what would be your um, answer to that question? Um, so I would say that the best approach we can all take is to be really honest and transparent with students, um, whether there are going to be bigger challenges for them this year or opportunities for them. It's for students to make the best choice for them. And the best way we can approach that is to provide really accessible advice and guidance in ways, not just online, but that are reachable by all students um, and that are really clear in, in their explanation of what the difficulties might be and how they can potentially navigate them. But ultimately, uh, I don't think it's really for anyone to say students should be going or shouldn't be going this year. I think it's for students to make a really informed um, choice about what reflects their personal circumstances and what gives them the best chance uh, to thrive uh, in higher education and to uh, move into a good uh, kind of graduate outcome at the end of it all as well. Absolutely, yeah, I think that as you say, the honest communication, and that's again, that's something that's really come through strongly from um, the discussion, just the importance of keeping those communication lines uh, open. Uh, okay, we've got another question here about how do we ensure that universities keep WP as a priority amongst all the other issues they're facing? This is something that I think you touched upon earlier, uh, Becky, as well. What would be your uh, prescription for how we ensure that you know, this is kept on the agenda? So I, I think part of that is the job, and I hope that we do a good job of it over the next coming months and years, of organisations like ours to make the arguments as publicly as we can as to the challenges that this group of students are going to be facing, the challenges for many cohorts of students that there are going to be, and that there is really still this massive importance of WP. I'd say internally, if as many staff as possible can be bringing this up and the importance of protecting those budgets, making sure that senior leadership still take it seriously. And um, everyone has a kind of role to play to make sure that we really keep this at, as high up the agenda as possible in the current situation. Absolutely. Um, I'm aware, I'm aware, increasingly aware of the time and we're nearly, uh, we've nearly used up our hour, but um, before, um, before we close, or what I would briefly like to do, and, and some of those questions I should say, you know, we, we have got questions, and if more questions do come in, uh, we'll try and collate those and try and put some um, answers to those and post that as a, as a blog after the event. Um, but before um, we have to close, I just want to quickly rattle around um, the panel uh, and just ask you for, you know, we've touched on quite a a few different areas um, over the uh, over the past hour and just if we wanted to leave practitioners or policymakers with a, a, a takeaway message for for them if you remember one thing uh, this is what we should be doing um, uh, so if I start I'll come uh, to Becky if that's all right so what would be the one message you want policymakers to take away so I would say the biggest issue is making sure that you're thinking about this for the long haul so this isn't only going to be a year long challenge, no matter when society is able to open back up again, universities can fully, this group of young people are going to be impacted from the schooling they've missed out on, the opportunities they've missed out on for a really long time. And that really needs to be thought about by everyone in the coming years. Absolutely. I think that's really key that this is not just a, a one shot game. This is going to have ripples that kind of continue out for, for, for many years. Um, in no particular order, I'm going to come to you, Martha, next, because you're the next person on my screen that I can see. So, um, Martha, what would be your one takeaway? I think, again, just to be, to be really honest and transparent in, in policymaking about why decisions have been made, what the expected outcome is, and what the reality of being a student next academic year might be, um, and to where there are challenges or praise from students uh, in regard to that kind of policymaking, to really take that feedback on board and really listen to those students in, in kind of future development. Excellent okay thank you very much and um, Sam if I can come to you next for your your one takeaway for policymakers or practitioners. Yeah I mean I think it's I think that the main thing that's coming out from this and I, I'm sorry it sounds a bit depressing but I think the basic point is it's not a matter of if this is going to accentuate 
uh, inequalities. It's a matter of, of how of how much. And I think if people and you know if, if policymakers have that at the forefront of their minds, that that is an inevitability here from what we know more generally. Then I think hopefully that means that it's built into the way they think about all of the responses to this crisis, rather than kind of waiting for um, you know a certain way down when 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 you know when 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 the actual ability to to act may be gone but we may have better data i think it's pretty clear on most counts where this is going to go and so to try and preempt and, and address these things as they come yeah i think that but i say that kind of baking it into the the policy response having that very much at the forefront of the mind is going to be really really key um and and last but certainly not least um charlotte yeah well building on what everybody else has just said really uh universities need to avoid tinkering around the edges with widening participation. Many of these issues are well established, well documented and still little has been done. Um, this COVID crisis, like other crises in history, um, we already know that reducing inequalities doesn't tend to be a priority in the recovery, in fact and the wider marketized system of higher education provides a doesn't provide the ideal context for addressing inequalities because of the unhelpful competition between institutions and students being seen as income generators so we need coordinated action on the part of the dfe on the office for students and of universities working together to address inequalities I think, you've, I think you've summed it up uh, excellently there um, to draw this all to a close. Thank you, um, Charlotte. Um, pretty much our time is up now. Um, so I'd just like to say, uh, take this opportunity to say thank you to everybody who's uh, joined us for this webinar. It's an important conversation. We've just scratched the surface uh, of, of some of these issues and I hope that this is something we're going to come back to and, and have more events and more uh, conversation on this. So. Thank you everyone for joining um, this afternoon. Special thank you to Becky, to Charlotte, to Martha and to Sam for their um, thoughtful contributions.